when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And from Genesis, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab your seats. One final prayer. Father, come and meet with us now by your spirit. As Shua always says, we're here to have a conversation. This isn't a one-way thing. And so commune with the people of God, and may they be stirred in their souls as we begin our journey in the study of sin and evil and Satan and the cross that has made all wrong right, that is bringing good to this world, now, presently, and forever in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So this past Monday, I was out and about taking one of my daily prayer walks through our neighborhood. Uh, And of course, I was, as is always the case, barefoot. Now, I know you're asking, Dan, silly man, why would you walk about your neighborhood barefoot? It's dirty. It's kind of disgusting. It's dangerous even with the likelihood of injuring your feet going up exponentially without the protection of shoes, to which I respond... I walk about barefoot really for two specific reasons. One, my hippie roots are super deep. I have always had this nagging sense that I should have been a flower child of the 60s instead of an angry Gen Xer of the 90s. Second, and maybe a little more seriously, I have had this ongoing fascination with biomechanics and human movement patterns for the better part of a decade now. And I've kind of convinced myself via a series of sports science and kinesiology research papers and the occasional fringe YouTuber, for sure, that the human foot functions best without compression or the cushioning of shoes. So there you have it. I walk about barefoot throughout my neighborhood because it's nostalgia and science, sort of. (laughs) But this last Monday, I learned a third and particularly unique reason for walking about my neighborhood barefoot. As I strolled down the sidewalk, I noticed this woman, baggy flower-patterned pants, Birkenstocks, partially dreaded hair up in a tie-dye bandana, and noting my bare feet, she had this huge grin on her face as I approached with a glint in her eye and a smile. She said with great conviction and deep joy, you're earthing, aren't you? I've seen you running past my house barefoot. I've seen you walking around barefoot all the time. You've just got to be earthing. Now, my interest more than peaked. I asked her her name, and I just jumped right into the deep end. No, Michelle, I'm not earthing, but I'd love to know what that is. And so she set down her huge bucket of banana peels and boiled artichoke leaves, which I assumed she was taking to her ginormous compost pile that was sitting in her front yard. And she proceeded to tell me that when we walk around barefoot, our energy systems connect with the magnetic fields of the earth, and it helps align the contours of our spiritual and our physical being. Now, genuinely not wanting to quell her enthusiasm, I responded, whoa, that's amazing. For me, I just like the way that my feet feel without shoes. But you know what? The universe really is a miracle. I'm going to be sure to check that out. To which she responded, she responded, yes, yes, dude. She was so certain and convicted that there was so much on the internet about this magnetic field alignment of our spirit and our physicality. She went on to say, I got to tell you, man, there's all sorts of beep we don't know about the earth and our spirits and how it all connects. But this is science. It's real. 
And so we said our cordial goodbyes, as is always the case when meeting a new neighbor. And as I walked away barefoot, strolling down the sidewalk, I thought to myself, what a strange cocktail of longings and beliefs, certainties and assumptions, clarifying explanations and confusing mysteries we moderns are. On the one hand, we are mystical and spiritual. Try as we may to suppress that troublesome sense that there is something out there. We simply can't. Mystery looms large on the horizon of the human experience, and so we propose a plethora of explanations, including magnetic fields, auras, chakras, crystals, karma, reincarnation, and in the language of Jesus and his communities, just as strange in the ears of anybody that doesn't believe as we do, soul, spirit, angels, demon, heaven, hell, resurrection. On the other hand, we are rigorously empirical. If it can't be measured, weighed, tested, retested, and recorded via the scientific method, well, then to believe in its existence is suspect at best and silly, irrational, and dangerous at worst. Science, for some, has become the leading voice of truth as long as it conveniently fits in one's social and moral preference, and it becomes the final authority on what is and isn't trustworthy. And so here we are as a culture where chemists holding crystals in the hopes of aligning our energy systems and finding some relief from our anxieties. We're soccer moms rigorously demanding the biology homework gets done while determining the best course of action with our kids based on the astrological position of the stars on their birth date. We travel into the vast reaches of the universe using the mathematical constants of geometry, trigonometry, calculus, and physics while practicing transcendental meditation and hypertrophic breathing techniques to escape the confines of physical reality. I'm pairing extremes here, but we all find ourselves existing on a spectrum between mystery and rationality, science and spirit. Some lean more natural, some more supernatural, but none of us ever get to exist in a whole harmony of the two. And so we live our days in an existential and an experiential civil war of sorts. And this disorientation drives us, maddening us. It creates anxiety and fear, insecurity, uncertainty, a loss of meaning. And in a futile attempt to bring harmony to the two, we tend to manipulate or lie or force our vision of reality upon one another, resulting in religious and social and political wars with no means of peace between the parties. And our desires, disordered as they are, are never satisfied. These are the marks of a split cosmos, operating in ways that it was never designed to. And while there is an endless supply of explanations and varying solutions to our plight here at Neighbors Church, we are most compelled by the teachings of one very unique human. Jesus of Nazareth claimed to tell the ultimate story of reality, and he set himself as the centerpiece of that story. He claimed to have come to reunite that which had been separated. Jesus existed as a united whole, embodied God among us, spirit and flesh in perfect harmony, and he said he came to restore all of us to that same harmonious existence. And this, dear friends, is at the very roots of our study of the cross for the next four months. 
Here at the onset of a long cross-centered meditation, we read again from verse 1 of John 18 out of the gospel. When he had finished praying, this is Jesus, left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into this garden. John here highlights that the beginning of Jesus' betrayal and ultimate crucifixion took place in a garden. It's not by accident that he highlights that. Because this scene in John's gospel is an echo of previous garden events recorded in the sacred texts of John's ancestral peoples, the Hebrews, particularly in the book of Genesis. John's garden is intended to point us back to where everything went so horribly wrong. And so we have to do some hard work in the earliest pages of the Bible to grasp the beauty and scope of what's happening in the final pages of the Bible. And in the most simple of terms, the Bible attributes the separation of heaven from earth, physical from spiritual, the wrongs, the wounds, and the wars of humanity to one singular word, sin. Sin. And while it is most certainly not in vogue, even taboo in our culture to talk about guilt, shame, wrong, personal responsibility, we must humbly face our sin. Philosopher and New Testament scholar Cornelius Plantinga, in his incredible little book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, asks this, why retrieve an awareness of sin? Why restate the Christian doctrine of sin? The reason is that although traditional Christianity is true, its truth saws against the grain of much in contemporary culture and therefore needs constant sharpening. Christianity's major doctrines need regular restatement so that people may believe them or believe them anew. Indeed, for most of us, a healthy reminder of our sin and guilt is clarifying and even assuring. For unlike some other identification of human trouble, a diagnosis of sin allows hope. Something can be done for this malady. Something has been done for it. And so, friends, as we make our journey to the cross, we must first trod the dark and ugly road of human sin. And sin is not simple, as much as the church would like to pre present it as something simple. Sin is terribly complicated, as one would expect of such a wily and deceiving power. Sin is something that you and I have done, and sin is something that has happened to us, been done to us. Sin is the rejection of our purposes, while sin is simultaneously the robbing of our place in the universe. Next week, we'll learn that sin is a beast to be resisted externally, and yet it is something within us inherent to our being from birth. Sin is both wicked rebellion and hyper-legalistic religion. Sin is personal and social. Sin is conscious and unconscious, individual and woven into the unjust relational systems within which we live. So we start our morning in the book of Genesis. Is everybody ready to talk about sin for the next month? Yes, I love you guys. I knew you'd be totally into this. Our big idea for the morning, our big idea for the morning, sin is a loss of vocation. Sin is a loss of vocation, a loss of job, a loss of work we are called to do. In essence, we humans, 
do not do what we were designed to do, and this is core to understanding sin. The authors of the book of Genesis and the entire Old Testament and the New return us to the world of antiquity. So track with me here for a moment. The ancient world was centered around temples and priests. There were multitudes of temples, each unique to the various gods that they represented. And for every temple and every god represented, there was a community of priests called to carry out the rituals and rites required by the various deities. Now, the Jewish people had their own temple as well, but the Hebrew temple was unique amongst all the other temples of antiquity. A huge portion of the Old Testament, all the boring stuff that we try to skip over in our yearly Bible reading program, that is devoted to the creation, the ordering, and the use of the Jewish temple and prescriptions, handbooks for how the priests were to perform their rites and rituals for the deity that they were seeking to please. The Jewish temple had a specific design with symbology that was a mix of earthly and heavenly realities within it. The temple was a physical representation on earth of God's dwelling place in heaven. It was a thin space, as the Celtic theologians would call it, a thin space between heaven and earth where God's presence met with humans' presence. And the Jewish priests, they served as intermediary representatives. They represented the people, before God, and they represented God to the people. And here is what made the Hebrew temple super unique amongst all the rest. The Hebrew temple was a mirror image of God's intent for all of creation and every human that ever existed. The Hebrews believed that the temple was in microcosm what God had originally intended all of creation to be in the beginning. Genesis 1 and 2 they described the original creation as a cosmic reality where God's presence dwelt with humans' presence and heaven and earth were one. Adam, which is the Hebrew word hadam, it literally translates as human. And Eve translates source of life. Human, source of life, hadam eva. They were pinnacles of this cosmic temple and they were in the language of Bible, Priests. As priests, Adam and Eve were given three main responsibilities, their vocation, to represent, to rule, and to worship. Three main responsibilities of the vocation of the priests in the cosmic temple, Adam and Eve and you and I, represent, rule, worship. Let's talk first about representation. Again, unique to the Hebrew temple, in contrast to all the other temples of antiquity, was the fact that Within the Hebrew temple, there was no image representing Yahweh. There was no statue representing God at the center of the Jewish structure. All the other temples in the land would have had a little statue or a little idol. We all have the image of a man figure with like a goat head or something on it. All the weird statues that we find from archaeology studies. These were the temple idols that represented the God in the center of those structures. But the Jewish temple did not have one of these images. The Jews had been specifically prohibited from making any idols or images because according to Genesis, the humans themselves were the living representatives of God. The Bible says is image-bearing responsibility. Image-bearers. Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God said, 
let us make mankind, that's Adam, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them in his image. Number one, all humans, every human that has ever existed in all of history, are representatives. We are and were and always will be created as image bearers. This is so crucial for your sweet souls this morning to grasp as we begin our in-depth study on sin for the next four weeks. In the eyes of God and according to the scriptures, we humans are dignified first, not dishonored. We are of infinite value and worth by our very existence, not worthless and of no value. If you are breathing and conscious this morning, it's because you are of infinite value as an image bearer and not a mistake. We are beautiful and glorious before our creator God, not ugly and hideous. Teachings on sin can get this backwards, and I have many times in my teaching career putting forth the deformities and the brokenness as primary above the true form and beauty of our image-bearing capacities and realities. And so when we get these teachings backwards on sin, it leaves our souls feeling utterly destitute. But to understand sin truly, we must recognize that sin is not who we are, nor is it how God sees us categorically. We are infinitely loved living images of God in the cosmic temple of all of creation. And sin, friends, is the rejection of that reality today. That is the foundation of sin, the root of sin. We have to save the details of Genesis 3 for a later date. We'll start next week. Sin is a beast we must resist. But Adam and Eve were deceived essentially by this enemy of God, a talking snake, and they trusted it and they trusted themselves above God's word. And so they defined good and evil. They took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they defined for themselves, rather than trusting God's wisdom in prescribed way, they defined for themselves what was good and evil. And when they and when we disobey God, it mars our image-bearing capacities. Plantinga, again, is helpful. He calls this the vandalism of shalom. When we deny the reality that we are image-bearers and we define good and evil for ourselves, it's as if we take spray paint on the Mona Lisa and we mar it and taint it and ruin its capacity to image God truly. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that my very existence as an image bearer is enough to satisfy every desire of my heart. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that my very existence as an image bearer is enough to satisfy every desire of my heart. Let's keep moving through this. Number two, as priests, Adam and Eve were to rule as royalty in partnership with God. The language is very specific here. Verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so the original command and commission to Adam and Eve in partnership with God was to exercise loving authority over all of creation. 
Humans were to embody God's wisdom, God's goodness, and beauty as they ruled alongside each other and alongside their creator, all in perfect harmony. And what sin does is it twists the command to rule and it turns it inward upon self instead of for the sake of others. And because we don't trust God's way of ruling, a God who rules with kindness, a God who rules with servant-likeness, a God who rules with softness and humility, a God who rules by making decisions and acting very slowly, billions of years to bring about you and I, if you buy into that line of thinking, very slowly, because we don't believe and trust and rule in the way that he rules, we take ruling into our own hands. And when we humans define for ourselves the right and the wrong way to rule, well, the result is as inconsequential as, you know, those little manipulative exaggerations that we use during a time of gossip to make us feel like we're ruling another person. We're just a little bit better, a little bit more than. All the way to the horrific tyrant dictatorships, even in our modern day that claim to exist as modern deities to whom all must bow or die. To see another human being as less than ourselves, friends, that is the corrupted way of human ruling that fuels injustice, inequality, oppression, sexism, racism, xenophobia, and ultimately genocide. Number three, represent, rule, and number three, they were to work and keep the garden, which was actually their worship, priestly worship. Chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Very big, important, heavily freighted Hebrew words here. The big idea, the image of working and caring for and keeping the cosmic temple of creation is all summarized by our English word, worship. In fact, throughout the Hebrew Bible, the same words, work, take care of, keep, and worship, they're all synonyms translated in our English. As image bearers, we humans are to create and cultivate, care for and tend to each other and all of creation. We were made to celebrate and multiply and take responsibility for developing the rich and the vivid life of creation in a loving and trusting and obedient way with each other, which is our worship. When Adam and Eve obeyed the enemy of God, they gave their allegiance to a created thing instead of to the creator. And this was a failure in work and in worship. Tom Wright comments on this. It's a lengthy quote. When we worship and serve forces within the creation, the creation for which we were supposed to be responsible, we hand over our power to other forces only too happy to usurp our position. We humans have thus, by abrogating our own vocation, handed our power and authority to non-divine and non-human forces, which then run rampant, spoiling human lives, ravaging the beautiful creation, and doing their best to turn God's world into a hell, and hence into a place from which people might want to escape. Some of these forces are familiar, money, sex, power. Some are less familiar in the popular mind, not least the sense of a dark, accusing power standing behind all the rest of that which we worship as fallen, sinful humans, not working, not worshiping the way that we were designed to. 
It's really interesting for me to know alongside you this morning. We moderns, we don't really have categories for temples and priests. I mean, except for maybe that gigantic Mormon temple that we all go speeding past on the way to UTC out there on I-5, and everybody's like, wow, that's a big building. I wonder what's going on in there. But then we don't ever think about it again. Or maybe we've got some good Catholics in here, and you have those sweet memories of the priests and their vestments. But these things all exist on the periphery of our minds, if at all. Yet, humanity being humanity, we moderns, we still have our temples and our priests through whom we worship. We've just camouflaged them with secular clothes, choosing to ignore the spiritual realities behind them. Let me give you a few examples. My wife and I, we spent nine days in Manhattan in December for our 20th anniversary. As I walked about the city, I had this sense of infinitesimal smallness. These skyscrapers seemed to just break through into the heavens, and they were like huge temples. I found myself longing, if only I could get in there, I might be somebody. If I could get into that temple, I might make enough money to be secure. I might have some real value and some, some, some success and some recognition. I don't know what just happened to that wording, but man, that was gnarly. <laughs> the priests of Manhattan on their subways and walking the sidewalks, they flood the streets wearing only the most fashionable priestly vestments, declaring these clothes, this look, this way of life is the good and true life. This is the way of salvation. Friends, we fill massive sports arenas to watch our representative priestly champions clothed in bright jerseys covered in symbolic mascot figures and colors crush the enemy as we don the jerseys and priestly vestments of our favorite athletes to identify with them and celebrate the victory that they might win for us in our place. Influencers image to us via our digital temples. This is how life should be lived. This is what we need to be fulfilled and satisfied. This is salvation. And while Amazon is nothing more than a series of zeros and ones put together at very high speeds, it promises an endless supply of whatever we might want, whenever we want it, a powerfully coded cyber temple of satisfaction and salvation. Now, listen, I don't want to take this too far. Football is awesome. I'm going to watch a lot of it this afternoon. Fashion is fun. Instagram influencers aren't the devil, most of them anyway. And I use Amazon daily. I use Amazon daily. But what I want us to see and feel is that we will never escape our vocation of royal priesthood. It's what we are. It's what we were designed to do. Sin just twists and deforms our worship and centers it on less than God himself. And so representing God as living image bearers, ruling in partnership with him, working, caring for, and keeping each other and creation as an act of worship, all form our vocation as royal priests. And through sin, we have rejected and given up our calling and our role in the universe. But this isn't the end. Tom Wright, again, is helpful and very hopeful. The remarkable thing is that the creator, having made the world to work in this way, with humans functioning like the image in a temple, standing between heaven and earth, and acting on behalf of each in relation to the other, has not abandoned the project. Eve in the moment, even in the moment of Adam and Eve's rejection of their royal priestly vocation, even in that very moment, Genesis chapter 3, God promised them that one of their descendants, the seed of the woman, in the far future would come and would not fail. 
The seed of the woman would come and truly rule. He would work and worship and win victory over the enemy, restoring all humanity to its truest state. Verse 15 of Genesis 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. As we travel through the Bible and arrive back where we began, at John's Garden, we encounter through the meta-narrative of the story this long progression of people who looked like they could be the snake crusher. They operated as royal priests, but ultimately they ended up failing, creating this deep expectation as you read through the pages of the Bible, this, this longing for this awaited perfect royal priest who won't fail in God's calling. Jesus arrived as the new Adam. Jesus, in conflict with the corrupt religious priest of his day, and as the true royal priest of God, imaged him perfectly as God among us in the flesh. Jesus ruled like God by healing, caring for the oppressed, seeing the unseen, lifting up the lowly, bringing into the center those on the margins. And as a priest, he worked and worshiped, offering mercy and forgiveness and blessing from God to the people. Jesus was and is and always will be our true and perfect royal priest for us. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is about. Our high priest who knows what it feels like to hurt physically, emotionally like a human. And now we return finally to our beginning verse in John's garden. Let's read it one last time. When he had finished praying, Jesus, our high priest, perfected and royal and ruling, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. As the disciples went into this garden, it was as if they were returning to the first garden where it all went wrong. Only now Jesus, the new Adam, and the perfect royal priest would not succumb to the lies and attacks of the snaky enemies of God. He ruled them with love. He worshiped his God in obedience all the way through betrayal to the cross on our behalf because we could not do it ourselves. His obedient worship his cultivation of our souls and all of creation was to offer himself as the ultimate priestly sacrifice. Not a lamb, goat, ram, dove, but his very body. He took upon himself, Jesus of Nazareth, he took upon himself the cruel and the deformed ways of human ruling. He didn't rule with war, he absorbed the war. And rather than abdicating his care for us and his care for creation, he absorbed our abdication of care for him and care for creation and care for the other all the way to his death. And then through the resurrection, which we will get to months from now, through the resurrection, Jesus restored our priestly vocation because some supernatural metaphysical mingling of heaven and earth has come about and those who say, Jesus, you are my Lord, we are placed in him and heaven and earth become one again and all of his perfected priestly righteous vestments clothe us forever as an act of grace from our God. Jesus now has ascended into the true cosmic temple where he resides as the ultimate royal priest ruling over heaven and earth. And now through his Holy Spirit, you and I are carrying on his perfected priestly role here on earth as an extension of his body. 
when God poured out his spirit on Jesus' followers in the book of Acts and you and I today, it was the next stage in God's cosmic recreation project to restore us and heaven and earth to its Edenic state as a new temple and a recreated royal priesthood. St. Peter would describe it this way, having walked with Jesus. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, that's temple, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I individually, we together collectively as the church, we are the new temple of God. It is through us through whom humans will now come back into God's presence. You and I, together and individually, we are the reuniting location of heaven and earth, the physical and the spiritual. We are walking thin spaces between the kingdom that will be and the kingdom that is right now. We are a restored priesthood. We do the priestly things like teaching the scriptures and singing songs of praise to God and carrying out all the symbolic rituals that represent our reuniting with God like baptism and communion. We carry creation and humanity on our hearts to God through the priestly prayers of intercession and blessing. And as we practice the way of Jesus, primarily laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, we learn to rule with sacrificial love, enemy love, care for and tend to our neighbor and creation for their highest flourishing. And we, like Jesus, friends, now willingly offer our lives to God as the sacrificial offerings in wholesale obedience. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 said, therefore, I urge you, in light of everything that Jesus has done as your royal high priest, representing, ruling, caring for, cultivating you perfectly, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies, offer your whole being as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, restoration of priestly vocation. Sacrifice means, dearest friends, as the church of Jesus, that we have to, we must let go of the way that we want to rule and let God rule. We do not seize power. We take the place of servants. We sacrifice our time and our money and our energy on behalf of each other in the community. We surrender our will for the will of God on behalf of those who are still outside of the new garden and we trust, we must trust that God's purposes, that God's will, and that God's way, no matter how bad it looks and confusing it is, we trust that it is truly good. And so we will not take things into our own hands. We learn to resist the lies of the snaky enemy through the truth of scriptures. We rest and rejoice and surrender as new garden people, a restored royal priesthood, as temples, thin spaces between heaven and earth. So as we come to communion this morning, I just want us to hear John's words, not from his gospel, but from his revelation. Just prior to his death, he had been cast out to the Isle of Patmos. They tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, tradition tells us, but he's just like, nope, I'm still here. <laughs> and there on that island, he, it was revealed to him where all of this is going from the garden to John's garden to a new garden city in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter one, verses five to six. As we come to communion this morning, 
to him who loves us, to Jesus who loves you and has freed us, freed you from your loss of vocation, from your sins, from your misrepresentation of God, Jesus has freed you. From when we have ruled with our little manipulative exaggerations to put ourselves above another or acted like a full tyrant dictator demanding they bow before our wisdom. Jesus absorbed all of that into himself. By his blood, he's made you clean. To Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our lack of cultivating creation and caring for our neighbor in a sacrificial way. And now to Jesus who loves us and by his blood has made you and I by faith to be a kingdom and priests. How's that for a Monday morning meditation? Priestly vestments donned by the saints of God to go drive a bus on Monday morning. He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. As we come to communion to him, be glory and power forever.